And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. If you, if any people, take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. All right, welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, along with my partners in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato and Roberto Bochain. And uh, we've taken a couple weeks off, but now we're uh, back in full force. And um, this week is the 100-year anniversary of the birth of the Volstead Act, which is uh, what put prohibition into place in 1920. And it would last for over a dozen years and really changed the landscape of uh, the, the modern America criminal underground. It was something that... Uh, resonates, you know, today, 100 years later, people still talk about the roaring 1920s. People talk about uh, Al Capone and and John Dillinger and uh, all those kind of iconic criminals from that Prohibition era, uh, Bonnie and Clyde and whatnot. And uh, we're going to sit here and kind of do a little deep dive into what uh, Prohibition meant uh, for the country and what it meant for our home base here in Detroit, because Detroit was really kind of ground zero uh, for Prohibition um, in America because of its proximity to Canada and the water and uh, something like 80% of all uh, bootlegged alcohol um, uh, throughout the United States uh, began uh, on the on the banks of the Detroit River. Yeah, one thing that uh, listeners may not be aware of, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of this until I was researching it for my book, is that Michigan experimented with uh, prohibition before it went national. So we were actually a dry state before prohibition was national and uh, so we went dry in 1916 which is interesting um, but also I think it, there's some lessons here about prohibition today with drug prohibition or other types of prohibition because they banned the consumption manufacturing sale of alcohol in Michigan so what did people do they drove down to Ohio <laughs> where it was still legal which legal. for people that aren't from this area <laughs> Uh, from Detroit to the Ohio border is less than an hour. Right. So the Dixie Highway, which is, is still exists, but back then that was one of the major uh, uh, routes that you could take down to Toledo. And um, you could buy a case of booze for $8 in Toledo. This is in 1916. And then drive it up to Detroit and sell it for $75 a case. So there were, um, even then, uh, really extraordinary profit margins you can make from from bootlegging and because michigan was the first state of the union to go dry and there was a four-year buffer between when the state of michigan went dry and the rest of the country went dry it gave the criminals in southeast michigan a head start right on learning the blueprint learning the game uh, of how to uh, properly, uh, yeah. you know, smuggle in illegal liquor. Yeah, yeah, great point. Building up that infrastructure and 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 networking. And another thing that I think is interesting about this is so why did Michigan go um, dry? And there were um, conservative elements in Western Michigan who were uh, most of them very uh, religious Christians who were funding the temperance. Movement and including people like Henry Ford. Uh, I mean, he wasn't western side of the state, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, um, really, um, what's the? Uh, how should I put this? Like, um, just a real like stick in the mud. Like, 
a curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah, right. Just didn't like. Just did not like the idea. Thought it was that drinking would make people, you know, lazy, and it was kind of an he urban. Wasn't a, he ethnic wasn't a very thing. pleasant, pleasant man. No, no, he Henry wasn't. Ford. There, there were some racial overtones there, you and so be more wrong on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, he just, he just um, that that was one of his his causes was to donate money, and so they were able to get a statewide prohibition ban and and. At some point, I think we should come back to Henry Ford because there's a, there's a lot of hypocrisy there too. Because we know that that he was, he, especially Harry Bennett, his right hand man, was, was a lot of crossover, a little cross, a lot of crossover from <laughs> right. uh, the early years of the Ford uh, Motor Company empire, right, and the uh, the building of that empire and how it crossed over to uh, you know business relationships with a lot of prominent Detroit mobsters, right. So politically and publicly, he's very puritanical. And um, funding these kinds of ultra conservative movements, but in the in behind the scenes, he's actually you know indirectly connected yeah. to the and same people that are selling booze illegally on his property. You know, um, I think if not all of the vending contracts, a big chunk of the vending contracts that the Ford Motor Company gave out in the 1920s um, were to Detroit mob figures. Right. Yeah. And not, and and. and Figures on the East Coast too, like Joe Adonis. Yeah, um, but yeah, the the contracts, the concessions contracts in the factories. That's what I'm saying. The vending contracts. Yeah, the vent, yeah, right. And then um, Big Chet Lamar, I know, right. uh, had a had, had a pretty serious interest um, in those vending contracts. Uh, for people that don't know, what uh, uh, Cesar Lamare or Big Chet was one of the right. uh, very powerful mobsters uh, during Prohibition in Detroit. Uh, lived in Hamtramck was known as kind of the leader of what was known at that time as the West Side Gang and was kind of a de facto underboss um, to singing Sam Catalanati, who was the uh, Sicilian overlord uh, throughout uh, the 1920s. And so Harry Bennett, who's Henry Ford's right-hand man, is close to Lamare and and some of these, uh, Joe Adonis and some of these other gangsters. So Henry Ford, who publicly is denouncing these criminal elements of society, let's go dry, let's ban all these things, anti-gambling, anti-prostitution, anti-vice. But in the meantime, behind the scenes, he loves the fact that Harry Bennett is close with these guys. And he's always asking Harry, tell me about, tell me, like, you know, he, he was sort of getting off on hearing these stories about, like, what are these guys like uh, when you hang out with, uh, who was the other one, the, not the Italian guy, Legs Lehman? Yeah, Joe Legs Lehman. Yeah, was another big gangster back then, bootlegger, who Harry Bennett was close with. So uh, it's just kind of interesting that the hypocrisy, political hypocrisy. And Bennett had a, a, had a uh, kind of a vacation property, I believe. Oh, right. On the west side of the state that he used to hold these these lavish weekend-long right. parties where he would invite, uh, you know, uh, uh, upper echelon members of, of the Detroit society, judges, um, politicians, um, doctors, lawyers, and whatnot. And but they then would he would all, with gangsters. And then they would also in, in, invite, uh, you know, right. prominent underworld figures. Right. Right, but Henry Ford would and a- athletes, actors, and my understanding is Henry Ford would not attend those parties. Like he, he, he was a, bu- it's just a complicated, yeah. hypocritical but complicated dude. He wouldn't attend those things. But Harry Bennett, you know, he was an interesting guy. Then he would have um, in his office, right? Uh, he had he would carry a forty five in his office, and he had a shooting range in his office. So then, when people would want to come in to negotiate with him, he would start shooting, you know, just just target practice. But obviously, it was meant to intimidate. <laughs> I mean, Harry Bennett was a gangster for all intents and purposes. Right. Yeah. And there was a giant power struggle 
um, at the end of Henry Ford's life and after he died of who was going to take over the business. Was it going to be Harry Bennett right. or was it going to be his progeny? Right. And he and Henry Ford, for, for, for as far as I can tell, actually backed Harry Bennett against his own son, yeah. which is interesting. But, I mean, the, the, to bring it back to Prohibition, so we do go um, – it does go national, as Scott points out. We have the 18th Amendment. There's the nationwide ban in 1919. As Scott points out, it takes a little while to implement, to get it everything. It was voted in right. in 1919. It took right. effect on January 17, 1920, officially known as the Volstead Act. Right. So um, we can no longer, bootleggers in Michigan can no longer go down to Toledo. But just across the Detroit River is Canada and Windsor. And so that became the new supply chain for bootleggers in Detroit. And so right away in 1920, as early as 1920, uh, li- liquor manufacturers were shipping over 900,000 cases of booze to Windsor. Liquor manufacturers throughout Canada, 900,000 cases. Most of it ends up in Detroit. So um, right, they were well aware of the market <laughs> In Detroit, so uh, but also, but you know, picture the scene. If you're a bootlegger in other parts of the country, if you don't have connections in Detroit, right? um, If you're not going directly to the source, I mean, you're behind the eight ball significantly. So it gave Detroit a real uh, trump card and 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 a a leverage point. um, Yeah, to to build um, the the infrastructures of, of the various. Uh, criminal organizations that did pop up in Detroit, whether you're talking about um, what eventually became the modern-day Detroit Mafia, which was kind of a combination of the East Side, West Side gangs, and then uh, another group called the River Gang, which were a bunch of um, uh, St. Louis expats that had come here um, to to bootleg, uh, or the Purple Gang, which is the most iconic criminal organization in the history of uh, Michigan, and it's something that uh, only existed for about 10 years. But uh, the reverberations, the ripple effects, the legacy, the reputation um, precedes them um, to this day, you know, 100 years later, to the point where I still frequently get emails or messages or, uh, or, or pulled aside after talks I do. People ask me, what's the, uh, what's the modern day state of the Purple Gang? And I tried to explain to them that there hasn't really been a Purple Gang um, since probably 1935. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, even today you can, there's different shops where you can buy Purple Gang t-shirts. <laughs> there are many Prohibition era yeah. organized crime groups that you can still, you know, market t-shirts. So um, there's a film made about the Purple Gang, black and white film we were just talking about. No, Sorry I even, Robert Blake. I mean, I even have to this day students who know that my specialization is gangs and organized crime who will tell me uh yeah my grandfather or great-grandfather was in the purple gang and it's interesting because you know i'll ask the student their ethnic background they're not jewish which is it's interesting because we know that then in all likelihood they weren't but it's It's become become a a (laughs) catch-all phrase for any criminal activity in detroit from 1920 to say 1950 purple gang (laughs) and and within the jewish community (laughs) especially it's like anybody's third cousin that once got arrested for shoplifting <laughs> speeding tickets. he's a purple gang member <laughs> yeah. yeah right yeah right no that's so in, right. in reality there was probably about you know 50 guys that were core purple gang members um and within those 50 guys there was probably um 30 different family names um, right but outside of those let's say 20 30 uh surnames 
um, you weren't you weren't purple gang. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the Bernsteins, which is my relatives, my uh, uh, great grandpa's first cousins were the three um, or the four Bernstein brothers who were the founders and leaders of the purple gang. Abe Bernstein, who was the uh, Detroit's only Jewish godfather, and then his main lieutenants were his uh, younger brothers Joe, Ray, and Izzy. Eventually, Joe and Izzy went and moved out to California and worked with uh, Bugsy Siegel. And Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky was very close to the Purple Gang, specifically the Bernstein brothers, um, to the point where after Prohibition, Meyer Lansky's uh, official employment that he put on his tax return was as the owner uh, of a, um, a, a an oil company in Michigan called Mammoth Oil, which was run in tandem between the Bernsteins. And Meyer Lansky, and they 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 ran that business uh, up into the seventies, and it was the biggest um, oil company uh, west of the Mississippi. And Abe Bernstein also maintained close ties to the Italian mafia. Yes, uh, well beyond the, the glory days of the uh, well Gang. into the nineteen sixties, uh, and it, and it's and it's really a fallacy that gets um, repeated by very respected historians. Um, that that continue to write this in their uh, in their books and in their reports that there was some type of uh, war that broke out in Detroit between the Purple Gang and the Italians, and that the Italians wiped out the Purple Gang. In fact, I just saw um, an article that was commemorating the hundred years uh, or the hundred year anniversary of Prohibition that was put up on the uh, WDIV Channel Four website in Detroit. That's the NBC television affiliate here in Detroit, and there was a, a pretty lengthy article doing a, a kind of a review of who the Purple Gang was and. You know, right there at the very end, the Purple Gang was eliminated in a war with the Sicilian mob, and that just could not be further from the truth. Yeah, it's they were al- they were allies mythology. and they were friends and they worked very closely together, and it was a peaceful uh, transition of power after Prohibition, where the Bernstein brothers, who were the leaders of the Purple Gang, decided to, for all intents and purposes, retire and take the money that they had made, the millions of dollars they had made in Prohibition, and and kind of flip the script and, and try to take that dirty money and make it clean money and then they just handed over uh the rest of their business to the italians and just kind of took a piece of it Um, well correct me if i'm wrong all the the purple gang also started to implode though right like the rank and file through incarceration infighting infighting. so it's it's another thing within the jewish community i do a lot of talks um that that touch on the purple gang and they've been so romanticized in the Detroit Jewish community, <laughs> that there were these Robin Hoods, and that the they were there was there was a book written that they were good to their mothers. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and I, I always try to dispel the notion that the Purple Gang were quote unquote good Jews. These were bad Jews, and and these were my relatives, yeah. and these were Jews that preyed on other Jews and extorted right. other Jews, and out of the. Uh, 500 to 800 murders that are attributed to the Purple Gang throughout those 10 years, I would say 95% of them, if not more, were the Purple Gang killing other members of yeah, the Purple Gang. Right. Jews killing other Jews. Yeah, they weren't This killing... wasn't the Italians killing Jews or the Irish killing Jews. Right, wow. yeah. And and uh, so... They were ruthless. I mean, they were a ruthless, vicious, violent organization who you know only respected power and, and, and blunt and, and, and force. So one thing I think is interesting to think about the the magnitude of smuggling booze out of Detroit that you could have so many powerful criminal organizations coexisting 
And, and, and sometimes there were interruptions where they would have to have sit-downs. But for the most part, as you're pointing out, most of the killings were in, within yeah. their own, whether there it was, was Italians a, or Irish th- or that's, that's Jews, why it was within their factions that they were killing The each city other. of Detroit during Prohibition was really an outlier. Yeah. Um, the other major cities that were being torn apart by gangland warfare, mm-hmm. it was one ethnic group fighting against yeah, another Chicago, ethnic group for okay. territory. Right. In Detroit, yes, there was a lot of violence. Um, you can't deny that. Sure. But all the violence were groups that were, as you said, imploding. Yeah. And they were, you know, the violence was all pretty much a result of internal disputes. Right. Until, um, well, I should say, uh, the violence that didn't uh, result from internal disputes um, really broke out on kind of bookends of, of prohibition. You had the initial uh, Detroit mob war that that erupted in 1919 and lasted till about 1920 um, where you did have opposite sides of, of different groups going at each other. And then in 1930-31, you had uh, the Crosstown Mob War where the East Side uh, Mob went, went up uh, against the West Side Mob for control of the city's rackets. But with the, with the exception of those two um, violent conflicts that took place about a decade apart, um, yeah, which is which is which is the, the, an interesting counterexample is, is Chicago, where the, the Irish gangs were were fighting Capone's. Yeah, the Irish gangs on the north side of right. Chicago were fighting Capone's guys from the south side of Chicago. Right, and then even Capone's guys were fighting with other Italian. That's right. Yeah, mob groups, Aiello's group, yeah. right? As opposed to Detroit, where right. throughout most of Prohibition, all the Italian groups coexisted peacefully well i'm, I'm also it, it's interesting to bring up chicago to to demonstrate that what a hub detroit was of manu or uh, distributing supplying alcohol to the rest of the nation um you you really wouldn't get a sense of this from watching boardwalk empire or untouchables or what have you but al capone gangsters in chicago to a large extent were importing their booze from detroit through their relationships with not just italian mafia guys but purple gang other, they other. were selling all, Old Law Cabin liquor, which was the Purple's branded bootleg liquor, which Old Law Cabin, which was known as kind of the Cadillac of bootleg liquor at that time. It was the the best, uh, the, uh, the most select type of uh, booze that you could get was on that, the black market. Were they, was that through their distillery? Because they had large distilleries, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was the equivalent of like Frank what Frank Lucas did in American Gangster with his Blue Magic. As a brand, the equivalent of that was the the Bernstein Brothers Old Log Cabin uh, bootleg booze. So I, that's interesting to, to 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 think about the the machinations here uh, or the mechanics of it. So the gangsters, regardless of their, and by the way, the gangsters and bootleggers were not just the Jewish Purple Gang, Italian mafia guys. There was so much money to be made. This was such an unpopular law. So many people were drinking and wanted to drink that everyone got in on it, right? There were there were a ton of independent bootleggers who were who were in on this, right? They it, it, the Purple Gang and the Italians did not have a monopoly yeah. on, on on bootlegging. But those independent groups still had to do business. Sure. Uh with with the bigger groups. Yeah, the bigger fish, yeah. right? Uh um so but you were smuggling Booze from Canada that is manufactured by traditional liquor companies. I don't know who was the bit that was at Seagram's. Hiram, Hiram Walker and Seagram's. Those, okay. So, but that wasn't the only type of booze you could get. There were bootleggers that had distilleries, industrial sized yeah. distilleries. And the Purple Gang was one of the bigger examples, right? And they had them all across the state of Michigan. Right. I right. mean, up north, 
out yeah. west, down south. And that was pretty good quality, yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Which is interesting because a lot of my from what I've read, a lot of the homegrown stuff wasn't very good. But they were they were manufacturing high yeah. quality to the to the point or to the extent that uh, the the infamous Saint Valentine's Day massacre mm. uh, was Al Capone taking out his rivals, uh, the Irish mob from the north side, in order to lure them um, to their slaughter. He had the Bernsteins and the Purple Gang set Bugs Moran up. Bugs mm. Moran was his enemy, the Irish mob boss of Chicago at that time, and the enticement for Bugs Moran to send his guys uh, to the garage where they were eventually all gunned down was. Uh, the Bernsteins telling them we've got a, uh, a a big load of old log cabin liquor for you that we're going to give you at a discount. Wow! So I, I and it was a it was a ruse. It was just a way to get right, them right, out in the set, open to right, be killed. Right, and one of the most high profile yeah, and gangland then, assassinations. And then a number of purple gangers were actually on the scene, and there was a. A hotel boarding house that was directly across the street from where the St. Valentine's Day massacre took place, and the Keywell brothers, the Fleischer brothers, and one of the Bernstein brothers were checked in to that uh, uh, that boarding house for the two or three days before the St. Valentine's Day massacre and the two or three days after the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But the shooters weren't Purple Gang guys, right? Or is that uh, I believe one demand? of the shooters was Fred the Killer Burke, who was who is connected to the Purple Gang. Right. That's interesting. So. There was so much. There was so much. Um, uh, uh, so much. The market was so wide for alcohol that probably smuggling uh, commercial grade liquor from Canada wasn't enough. So you had these. You had these huge distilleries, bootleg distilleries. People are manufacturing it in their basement and in their house, yeah. right? Rock gut, yeah. which wasn't very high quality. And we're, and we're talking about how. Detroit had, 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 there was such a leverage point if you were a, a bootlegger from Detroit and, you know, how other people from around the country needed to do business in Detroit if they right. wanted to be successful in the bootlegging trade. And it, it, doesn't, it didn't discriminate. Al Capone, who right. is without a doubt the biggest illegal bootlegger of all time in terms of the history books, sure, he knew where his bread was buttered mm -hmm. and he did a lot of business with the Purple Gang in Detroit with the East Side Mob in Detroit, which was the uh, the precursor to the uh, modern day La Cosa Nostra family, the Toko's really crime family, which was led by uh, Black Bill Toko and and Joe Zarilli, and Al Capone was in Detroit on a pretty regular basis from 1925 through when he went to prison in I believe 1932 or 33, having meetings, doing sit downs, making deals. Uh, Weck Hotel, which was the Purple Gang's headquarters, the Leland Hotel, the Fort Shelby, the Statler. Those were all kind of big um, uh, uh, hotels of that day. And Capone was uh, made his presence fe uh, felt in, in Detroit on a pretty regular basis. But he had to – but at the same time, he, 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 he wasn't in a position to push around the Purple Gang, though. I mean, they, they were they were negotiating as equals. Well, that's my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He wasn't right. coming in to bully. He was coming in, in some right. ways, kiss the ring. Yeah, right. Because he knew he needed them as allies. Right, right. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, th there will be a lot of thirsty. Yeah. And he trusted <laughs> them to the Chicago. point where he, you know, he looped, he he corralled them into the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So the Purple Gang would not have overlapped with Joe Kennedy at all, right? Because Joe Kennedy was getting his booze from Europe and from the Caribbean. There, there's a famous story, and I've heard multiple accounts. I've also heard. Uh, um, an account that the account that I'm about to tell you is false. So, you know, 
take it with a grain of salt, but there is a, a, a legend or a mythology out there that Abe Bernstein put a murder contract on Joe Kennedy's head for a shipment of hijacked old log cabin liquor that was heading out east. Wow. And that Al Capone actually had to uh, act as peacemaker and that there was a sit down that was held at the Leland Hotel in Detroit where Joe Kennedy came in here and there was Al Capone at the at the at the forefront of the table. The Bernsteins led by a Bernstein at one side and Joe Kennedy on the other side. And that Capone actually squashed the beef. But don't tell me that that's not true because I love <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I hope that that's true, but, but uh, <laughs> you already spoiled I, it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard that from people in my family. I've also read it in some great some um, FBI documents that uh, from from FBI informants or whatnot. But I also had heard from a couple historians that specialize in that area uh, in that era, which I don't specialize in. That that was actually kind of a mythology, and that there might have been some type of dust up, but it never reached the point where there was an actual sit down. But I, I had heard that the, that Capone actually. Uh, uh, oversaw a sit down between Joe uh, or Joe Kennedy and Abe Bernstein. That's a great. That's a great story. Um, so, and also, I think um, if you're not from the Detroit area, to think about the proximity to Windsor. So, when we talk about smuggling booze across the Detroit River, literally, like when the in the winter when the river freezes, you can walk across. I yeah. mean, that, that like so. This is not like some elaborate like across. Hundreds of miles or thousands of miles. No, like between right? like December and February, they would literally drive the booze across on the ice. Right. No, but no bridge, no tunnel, no. No, not then. So you would, they would, and and so so again, depending on the operation, a lot of these were just mom pop bootleggers. They were they were on toboggans, right? You see pictures of them, you know, pulling a few cases on a toboggan across the Detroit River. And then there was the uh, the speakeasies, which there was about. You know, 200, 250 speakeasies that were spread across um, southeast Michigan that were, you know, pretty much all controlled by the Purple Gang. And they had a, uh, the Purple Gang was very um, structured and, uh, um, you know, each, you know, the right hand didn't necessarily know what the left hand was doing. Uh, they were very compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. And you had one group that was in charge of, smuggling the liquor one group that was in charge of uh cutting the liquor one group that was in charge of uh, collections one group that was in charge of uh marketing and whatnot and you had what uh, you know a, a a tandem that was known as the two sammies um sammy k who was sammy kurt and then sammy purple who was sammy cohen and the two sammies um were in charge of all the speakeasies so those 200 speakeasies that were run by the Purple Gang um, were, you know, were overseen by by Sammy Kurt and Sammy Cohen. Sammy Cohen, after Prohibition, went on to become one of the main pioneers uh, of the Las Vegas Strip, and um, then eventually moved down to Miami and, and became a major gambling figure uh, down in in South Florida. But uh, Sammy Sammy Purple Cohen was the original owner of the Riviera Casino. And then because of his previous ties to the Purple Gang, after the, the casino got up and running, they were uh, he was forced to sell it. And he was actually partners um, in the Riviera with another uh, gangster from Detroit 
whose name was William Bischoff, who went by the nickname Lefty Clark. Yeah, major underworld figure yeah. in Detroit. And uh, Lefty Clark and Sam Sammy Purple Cohen um, were the original owners of the Riviera Casino. So one thing that, that is interesting, I mentioned in my book, and Scott, you can help uh, elaborate on this, is so when we think about the Italian Mafia, in the early days of Prohibition, Actually, the, the Italians were in a lot of ways late to the game, right? Most of the major bootlegging operations, not the mom and pop, but the major criminal bootlegging organizations, were not Italian. So because, right, like before the Purple Gang, you have, what was it, the Oakland? Yeah, so the, the Purple Gang was spawned off of the original Detroit Jewish mob, which was known as the Oakland Sugar House Gang. Right, right. So all the Purple Gangers as teenagers worked for the Jewish racketeers of the late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. um, Charles Leiter and Henry Shore. Mm-hmm. Henry Shore uh, had a son by the name of Mickey Shore, who became a very famous DJ on uh, the Detroit radio <laughs> airwaves. Yeah. And also has, to this, crazy. to this day, has a oh uh, has a string of, uh, uh, of, stereo. of uh, stereo stores. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. That's great. And then how was that? So then let's differentiate then the Little Jewish Navy. How is that different from so that? The Little Jewish Navy was a group of uh, Chicago expats that had come to Detroit and established themselves as the um, as the uh, the guys that would take that actually physically take the booze from Canada and bring it over to, to the United States. That was their only job. Okay. And they called themselves the Little Jewish Navy because they plied their trade on the Detroit River. And eventually they got into a dispute with the Purple Gang and ended up uh, the three leaders of the Little Jewish Navy, uh, Joe Leibowitz, uh, Harry Paul, and um, Izzy Sutzker, ended up being killed in what was known as the Collinwood Massacre, which was really, oh, right. the, which was really the first nail in the coffin of the Purple Gang. Um, and you, you mentioned the, uh, so the network of establishments where, where you could consume and purchase these, the booze. So to give you an idea of, of the scale here, before Prohibition, there were 1,500 saloons and 800 illegal liquor joints in Detroit. And so when people ask me, well, if it, if it wasn't banned yet, how could, it, how could there be illegal liquor joints? It's just like today. Like you're talking about after hours. It's like an after hours. Club. Right, right. So um, the booze itself isn't illegal necessarily. but So there were, 18, there were 1,500 saloons, 800 illegal liquor joints. By the end of Prohibition... 20,000 blind pigs and speakeasies in Detroit. So we went from we went from 800 to 20,000. <laughs> what happens when it adds? That's what I mean. Right. Um, but I just think it, I think I I want our listeners to think about the scale there of um, really I think it's a, it's a perfect example of a of a public policy failure. If the, if the design was... Yeah. It, it affected the exact opposite <laughs> right. of change that they were intending yes, on affecting. Right. right. I mean, like a thousand percent. Um, the opposite of, of what they were and what their, their goals were. And I think there may be some lessons for people that, you know, want to uh, the entire prohibit found- other vices these days. The entire foundation for the American underworld of the 20th century was laid down. The seeds were planted by prohibition. I mean, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. So, one thing that I I like to talk about with when I'm giving book presentations or with my students is um, up until Prohibition, a lot of these guys, and I can speak more to the Italians, 
uh, the guys who were who were either in in actual members of the mafia or were in Italian gangs, um, they were involved in larceny and maybe running card games, dice games, um, prostitution. They, they, yeah, prostitution. Uh, in some cases, even uh, opium. Early early examples of, of opium drug trafficking in this country. <clears throat> but they weren't multimillionaire kingpins until prohibition. Let, let's have a discussion about like uh, popular like, popular yeah. culture examples. Yeah, just five, maybe five ten minutes sure. of uh, our favorite uh, gangster prohibition flicks. Um, I did a little review yesterday of my own uh, DVD collection. I might be dating myself. I still have DVDs. Um, <laughs> so I have a few too. And probably my two favorite uh, prohibition gangster movies of all time uh, would be Road to Perdition, which is uh, Tom Hanks, you know, kind of first and only role as a bad guy. And he's a likable bad guy. He's an mm-hmm. honorable bad guy. Like anti-hero. And uh, I think it, it, it's based on a graphic novel. Um, Paul Newman's last major role uh, as an Irish mob boss that mentors the uh, the Tom Hanks character. Uh, Tom Hanks's family gets slaughtered in a um, in, in a mob hit, and then the movie's about him and his young son, um, you know, seeking vengeance. And uh, I, I just think it's a very well done movie. I believe it was directed by Sam Mendes who is now uh, one of the front runners to get Best Director in the 2020 Academy Awards for his new movie, 1917. I heard that was good. Yeah. So uh, I loved Road to Perdition. Once Upon a Time in America is a very slow, deliberate, uh, <laughs> paced film, but I, I love it. And who was the uh, director the, on that? Sergio Leone. Right. Yeah. Same one who did all the spaghetti westerns with Clint, right. yeah. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, this is his homage to the American gangster flick. Uh, I call it the Jewish Godfather. Um, it's Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, Burt Young, James Big Woods. Um, just, just an. Uh, it's a slow, slow tree William. Just it's a, it's a slow, slow burn. A movie that you kind of really got to get in. Uh, allow yourself to to kind of uh, marinate. Uh, and, and and simmer in and and let it kind of um, develop around you. you. You know, it's not a movie that it's not a Scarface. It's not a Goodfellas. That's fast and and uh, fast and fun. This movie is uh, more um, scholarly. It's it's uh, you got to have to really pay attention to the twists and turns. But it's got a great plot. Uh, I love the ending of it. A great um, a, a great surprise ending. And just it's great, pretty, great pretty avant garde for a great acting performances. Film. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not. It's, I don't want to get the wrong. If you haven't seen, it, it's not like a surrealist postmodern. But for as far as gangster films go, it's, it's kind of avant garde. And the it's movie different. begins and ends with right. the Robert De Niro character getting, getting going into a opium stupor. Right. And there's a lot of people that believe the entire movie is just his drug laced dream of uh, of what you just saw on the screen. But uh, he based the character Noodles. Aronson off of uh, Meyer Lansky, and I believe he actually spent some time with Meyer Lansky in preparing for the role. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's interesting. I also really, uh, in terms of the Coen Brothers, who I, I consider you know modern day filmmaking geniuses, um, they did Miller's Crossing. Oh yes, which is an uh, Irish gangster movie uh, takes place during the Prohibition in a uh, a nameless town. Uh, Albert Finney plays the Irish mob boss. Gabriel Byrne plays uh, his his right hand man. Um, and it's just kind of a tongue-in-cheek, uh, but still very serious, um, well-acted, well-directed, well-written, great great dialogue. Um, I'm a big fan of that film. 
And then uh, another one more recently that I loved that didn't do great uh, at the box office and has kind of been forgotten about is Public Enemies. I love that film. Uh, I was a, a, a Michael Mann is one of my favorite of directors. Film. Johnny Depp playing John Dillinger. I love it. Uh, I love the the way it looked. So underrated in my opinion. I, I love uh, you know Michael Mann in terms of aesthetics and visual yeah. filmmaking. Michael Mann's my favorite filmmaker. Very style, very yeah. cool style. Um, and I, I just thought that movie was. Was was a was a home run. A lot um, of action didn't action didn't packed. resonate with the public, and that's actually just chronologically at the tail end of Prohibition. Yeah, when when that the outlaws. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So as as as, but I as Prohibition's a, ending, you're getting like the de- depression era desperado. I'll tell you thing. what, maybe my favorite scene or one of my favorite scenes in that film though, and it talks about or it speaks to the crossover between the the uh, the outlaws of oh, that yeah. era and the, the Italian mob. Yeah, yeah. Where, they, where, where Dillinger and his crew were actually working somewhat in cahoots with the Chicago outfit, outfit yeah. where they were kind of being hidden, uh, you know, uh, st- being stashed in, in safe houses by the outfit and whatnot. And there's a scene between a character that was supposed to be uh, Dandy Phil D'Andrea, who was one of Capone's mm-hmm. main guys, and he sits with, with Johnny Depp and's like, yeah, it's over with. You're bringing way too much heat. Yeah, the bank We're not going to have anything to do with you anymore. Any, right. any you know, place you think you're going to hide on our right. on our dime, any, you know, it's over with. Right. You, you uh, heist 30 grand. From a bank robbery, we make that like what did he say, like yeah. an hour or something yeah. at, at, with the wire, yeah. the sports betting. Yeah. <laughs> so right, it, like it's he's saying it's antiquated what you're doing. That's cowboy. That's cowboy shit. You're, bring, you're bringing too much heat. <laughs> you're bringing too much heat, yeah. right? Yeah. But I, I I love Public Enemies, Miller's Crossing. I, I agree with all those. In terms of uh, Academy Award winning films, Untouchables was a very acclaimed movie that uh, got nominated for a lot of Oscars. Um, is considered an all-time classic. It's about Elliot Ness, who was played by Kevin Costner, going after Robert De Niro, or going after Al Capone, who's played by Robert De Niro. Frankly, I am not a huge fan of that movie. I think it's kind of cheesy. Yeah, that's where um, we, we've and we've actually talked about this in other. Yeah, we've talked about this in other episodes. I mean, we disagree. I I I really like Untouchables. I I, I understand your point. It is. Um, it's sort of comic bookish in a way, like kind of almost superheroish, if that makes if that makes sense. Kind of approach to well, gangster films, but I think it works. I, I think it's entertaining. I like it. Up, the reason I think that you like it so much is that after The Godfather, I think at your age when that movie came out, that's sort of your Godfather. Yeah, it was a big deal. That was that would have been yeah. the first sort of gangster movie. Yeah, you yeah, seen. because Scarface, I wasn't, I wasn't, old. I wasn't allowed to see Scarface yeah. as opposed to where I was allowed right. to see. Untouchables. I remember when <laughs> Untouchables came out, but I didn't see Untouchables till way later. Yeah. The first gangster saw, movie right, that I saw out. in the theater was Goodfellas. Yeah, my dad took me to see that when I was thirteen. And it was a transformational experience. Yeah, I can, yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, I, I can't overstate that. Um, you know, the movie that I really like that that um, goes into Al Capone, and this is definitely very um, kind of uh, cheesy and a little bit comic booky, is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. With Jason mm. Robards. Oh yeah, right. Um, yeah, playing Capone and George Siegel. Playing um, uh, one of uh, 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 Bugs Moran's main guys. It's interesting to watch those pre-Godfather films. They're different. Yeah. And up until the Godfather, that was considered one of the better yeah. gangster films from like nineteen sixty nine. Right until the Godfather yeah. came out, and then those were considered sort of campy, right? But but that's an interesting film. To I watch. really like Lawless. 
which is a movie that came out about eight or nine years ago. Yeah, Blue Leggers. Um, about uh, Blue Leggings in Kentucky right. with Tom Hardy and Jessica Chastain, like Shia LaBeouf. Gary Oldman was in it, played uh, oh, yeah. a, a gangster. He character. plays like the city, the big city, the city slicker yeah. gangster, right? I have a movie with the guys want, like, uh, featuring Scott Bayo called Bugsy Malone. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Is that are you Jody, serious? Jodie Foster. Yeah. Jody Foster. <laughs> of course you two guys it's a, know. It's a, it's a movie about <laughs> little kids <laughs> that are gangsters. <laughs> And when they're shooting each other, they're like shooting like whipped cream at each other. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Was a, all right. I didn't Come know that was a movie. All right. That's right. This is uh, last, thing I'll, last thing I'll say uh, about a movie that is, or I'll give two movies that I think are really underrated. One, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Um, yeah, I've never seen that. Uh, a movie about kind of uh, uh, prohibition out west yeah. and uh, kind of uh, settling a... a uh, uh, a town, uh, a dusty border town that's being fought over for bootlegging territory between uh, Bruce Willis or between two kind of competing gangs where Bruce Willis is kind of caught uh, in, in between those two gangs. And then my most underrated uh, movie from that era is a movie I'm guessing most people have never seen. It's called The Funeral. It's Abel Ferreira, the same guy that did uh, the classic um, King of New York uh, as well as Bad Lieutenant. Um, this was actually his follow-up to King of New York, and it's with Christopher Walken, uh, a, a very early Benicio del Toro, I've never um, seen that Vincent before. Gallo, and Christopher Penn. Never seen and that. And it's either. about uh, the murder of a uh, a young brother to a bootlegging kingpin, and kind of the aftermath of the murder, and then flashbacks to how the murder occurred. Um, and I'm I'm a big fan of that movie. Uh, before that, let me give you one more. I want to put in a shout out for one these. movie at that time. Featured a gangster named Roman Maroney. Oh, that's a good, yeah, I, yeah. And he was in a movie called Johnny Dangerous. Yeah, like. good one. Uh, that, that for sure. I, I, you I, ice holes. Yeah, that's one of the best you characters bar- of all time. ice holes. I mean, that's, come that, on. That's one of the, I'm glad you you, you I saw Actually, that. I saw that in the theater. No way. I saw that in the wow. theater. It was, I, it was 1984, so wow. I was like six, seven years old. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's, um. I, I want to, I, I agree with. Uh, uh, well, was it in the theaters for one day? <laughs> no, that movie. I think I think that movie did pretty well. I think it was popular. I think that time. movie did pretty well. Um, and Joe Piscopo was the bad guy in it. Well, yeah, he's good. Well, along he's with the guy who played Danny Roman DeVito? Maroney. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito's in it. In it. Uh, Michael Keaton's the lead right. as Johnny Dangerously. Um, so I agree with uh, a lot of Scott's picks. A couple of those I'm unfamiliar with. I, I uh, but Road to Perdition. You know, I like that. Um, I would just put in a, a shout out to um, some of the older black and white films that address prohibition. So uh, I'm a big fan of the original Scarface. Yes. I love the original. Paul was it 1931? Yeah. I, I think that movie Howard is so Hawk. good. Yeah, right. I love that. I love that film. Um, but I would also, um, I think that's the best one. Um, but it's, the you know, it's, it's up for debate. A lot of people pick Little Caesar, Public Enemy. I love those films too. They're, I think they're very good. For some reason, they're remaking Scarface again. I get, I understand. And it really right. bothers they're me. Do about the cartels, I yeah. think, or something like that. But um, any of the Roaring Twenties, Angels with Dirty Faces, the movies with Cagney and um, uh, Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, who uh, they want to? I just to this day, when people imitate him, that always makes me laugh. <laughs> you know, you know, you know who that guy is, Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I would I would just mention uh, some of those uh, old sc- school uh, films too. How about this, snakes? I'm gonna give you to the count of ten. Yeah. To get your low life keister off my property. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, last thing I'll say about Road to Perdition: uh, 
first movie I ever saw Daniel Craig in. Yeah, James Bond. He plays uh, the bad guy, right? He plays uh, Paul Newman's son. Paul Newman is the, 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 the Irish godfather who's working with Capone, who's the uh, mentor to the Tom Hanks character. And the, the Irish Don son, who's played by Daniel Craig, um, slaughters uh, Tom Hanks's family in it. Have you seen the bonus, the the footage that was cut from that with yeah, Anthony with, with Paglia as plays, Capone? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Stanley Tucci plays Frank Nitti, and that's a really there's a that's a big cast in that movie. That's a good. I, I agree with you. That's one of the best Prohibition. Uh, and and um, the uh, um, is Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee plays the wife. Yeah. And what I, I'll tell you a kind of cool anecdote that I either read about or heard was that when Anthony LaPaglia shot those couple scenes as Capone that never made it into the movie, in order to get into the role, he contacted the Capone family, somehow got his hands on some silk boxer shorts that Capone <laughs> had wore. No shit. And then wore those silk boxer shorts in the scenes Dil- underneath his clothes. Didn't Johnny Depp wear like Dillinger's pants for a scene Maybe. and? Public Enemies, I thought, from a museum yeah. or something he got. That's before, I know we were talking about films. We should, we got to at least address Boardwalk Empire before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, I loved it for its set pieces and the way they recreated the era. 100% agree. I just, and Jimmy and I have talked about this on a number of occasions. I, I watched it and I liked it. I loved all the side characters. I just did not fall in love with Steve Buscemi as the lead. He, to me, he's just not a lead. I agree. I agree 100. percent I think that's. I I feel like Boardwalk Empire, and I know a lot of people love it, and I and I liked it a lot. Uh, I always felt that there was just it. It didn't deliver as much as it should have. Bobby well, Cannavale is Gip Rossetti, though. Well, he's great. Was amazing. That, that's one of the best right. characters. And the, and the guy that it was an Irishman that played Capone. And yeah, oh, he's he's Stephen great. Gra- he's Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham, who he's plays. Plays Tony Provenzano he's a, he's in a scene the stealer. Irishman. Yeah, he's a scene stealer in yeah. Boardwalk Empire. Um, also, uh, Michael Shannon. Yeah, you're right. The supporting cast is fantastic. Uh, who plays um, Chalky, Chalky, Chalky White? Uh, Michael Williams. Yeah, yeah, outstanding. Right. So, but but Buscem, the lead has to. That can only take you so far, right? And um, but I agree with you. The set design, the costume design. When you're watching it, it looks like a oh, documentary. To me, that's <laughs> the best part. I loved it. I love right. how they recreated it's really that, lush. the era. Right. It's really lush. Um, I I feel this is just my own personal bias. I think that it would have been more interesting to set that television show in Detroit and to do all those things we were talking about, ties to Harry Bennett, do the Joe Kennedy sit down, even whether it happened or not with the Purple Gang. I just think that, that it would have been more interesting. I think... Another problem I have with it, and we've talked about this with the Hoffa film, I, I realize things you don't have to be historically accurate for it to be a good TV show or movie. However, in my opinion, the television show grossly or greatly overstates the importance of Atlantic City in the underworld during the 1920s and early 1930s. Yes, I mean you. I would concur. Yeah, you would think that you know there's and New Nucky York and Nucky Johnson, City. whose real name was Nucky Thompson, right. Or right. was it in the in the in the television show? It's it was Nucky, Nucky Thompson. Thompson. In right. real life, it's Nucky Johnson. Right, right. And um, I, 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 I'm not trying to uh, besmirch the, the legacy of of Nucky Johnson, but uh, <laughs> he wasn't I don't, a gangster. I don't think he was nearly the 
the superpower right. that they make him out to be in, in, in the TV show. No, I agree. He, he was a connected guy, a racketeer, uh, a dirty politician. But um, the idea that he was a, a, a mob boss, it kind of re- it, it reminds me a little bit of what true. they did with the Russell Buffalino character in The Irishman. Oh, yeah, right. Where they're kind of right. inflating their influence or, yeah. or, or their uh, power in order to make for a better narrative. And another thing, I thought that Boardwalk Empire was too ambitious at times. Like, for example, the, the, you're talking about the Chicago stuff. To me, they should have started those scenes as a backdoor to a spinoff that was just Chicago stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like Boardwalk Empire, there were just... There were so many competing storylines in different parts of the country where characters didn't even overlap with each other. And I, I just thought that that was, uh, that was frustrating at times. So um, I would encourage people to watch it for themselves, though. I don't want you to, to not give it a watch just because we didn't love it. Because it is an interesting show. And there's some great acting in there, great set design, great costume design. But it's definitely the most important Prohibition-era-themed television show, right? I mean, I can't think. Of, maybe Untouchables back in the fifty. When was Untouchables on the sixties? Yeah, 50s, late fifties. But I mean, 60s. Boardwalk Empire. I mean, that's yeah. that's the most significant as far yeah. as I can I can think of. Well, uh, this was fun, and uh, we appreciate you guys for joining us. And uh, this is the original Gangsters podcast saying we will see you next time. Like us on Facebook and respond to our uh, tweets on Twitter, too. The, the more love that you give us, Comment, you'll, like. you'll be able to hear us produce more often. More often. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we love what we're doing and we hope you love it, too. Uh, for the original Gangsters podcast, we out.